You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor David Whistle. So, in the late 1800s, France was actually transitioning from a traditional agricultural society to a modern capitalist economy. So this was a time where uh, France was becoming wealthier and more politically stable. People were becoming liberated from uh, what were viewed as oppressive social norms. The arts were flourishing. And there was a guy by the name of Emile Durkheim. He's actually one of the fathers of modern sociology, and he lived during this time. And he rose to prominence as a sociologist because he pointed out that for all the good things that industrialization was bringing, it also had a shadow side. Durkheim observed that increasing prosperity and the rise of consumer capitalism actually seemed to have a negative effect on people's mental health. So to empirically demonstrate this, Durkheim observed that suicide rates tended to dramatically increase as a nation became industrialized. So an example of this, during Durkheim's day, the suicide rate in Great Britain was double that of Italy, which was much less advanced economically than France. And in Denmark, which uh, was more advanced than Great Britain even, the suicide rate was four times more high. So being a sociologist, Durkheim wanted to understand what was going on. Like why was happiness, unhappiness, becoming so widespread in industrializing societies? And he identified three things. He said there are three things that are leading to so much unhappiness. He said first, too much individualism. So in traditional societies, People make few self-conscious choices about their identity. Like so much of who you are is determined. Like you're a baker, you're a Lutheran. You marry the person in your village that your parents told you to marry. Like that's who you are. And then conversely, in modern societies, individuals choose all these things. You pick your job. You pick your religion or lack thereof. You choose who to marry or to not get married at all. And Durkheim says, this sounds great. This sounds liberating. But in reality, this puts more pressure on people than ever before. Because we've made all our own choices in life, if we do well, we get all the credit. But if we do poorly, we get all the blame. The other thing Durkheim said was a problem was too much freedom. Now, many thinkers in Durkheim's day, many thinkers in our day, were saying that all people needed was just more freedom and they'd be happy. And that social norms must be ruthlessly undermined. And so in Durkheim's day, increasingly the sentiment became whatever works for you. And Durkheim says, the individual just kind of determining their own answers for themselves, that sounds really progressive and tolerant, but the reality is your average person is just way too busy and far too uncertain to come up with any adequate answers to life's deepest questions. And the last reason Durkheim said was causing so much unhappiness. He said, too much atheism. So interestingly, Durkheim was an atheist himself. But he did see the benefits of religion for society. And he worried that capitalism and science were undermining religion without being able to provide a good replacement for it. He said capitalism and science, they're great at increasing material prosperity, but they ultimately fail to produce the powerful shared experiences and robust community that religion can create. Well, as we come to our text this morning, we see that Durkheim's thesis, his analysis, was right. But he didn't go far enough. 
Unhappiness at a societal level is not only true of 19th century France, it's true of all civilizations. It's true of all peoples everywhere. Or in the language of Henry David Thoreau, the mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. And, and while sociology certainly can help us, it can't fix our deepest issues. But in our text for today, John chapter 1, we're going to see that all the things that all, all people are desperately looking for in life, whether or not we call ourselves religious, uh, we're going to see all those things. A meaning for, everyone wants this. Everyone wants a meaning for life that suffering can't take away. Everybody wants an identity that's received and not achieved. It's not conditional. And everybody wants relationships where we're fully known and yet fully loved. And we're going to see that uh, in John chapter 1 that there's only one source of fulfillment for all these longings that we all have. And that's Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. So John chapter 1 is kind of like the foyer to the rest of the Gospel of John. If you came in through our church's hospitality area, uh, the gospel, the, John chapter 1 is like that. It's a nice little place where there's a fresh pot of coffee and soft seating. It's a place where you get just a sneak preview for what the rest of the upstairs will look like. And in the same way, John 1, verses 1 through 18, sets us up nicely for the rest of John's gospel account. Uh, D.A. Carson, he's a Bible scholar. Uh, he summarizes our text for this morning. He writes this. The Son of God was sent into the world to become the Jesus of history, so that the glory and grace of God might be uniquely and perfectly disclosed. The rest of the book, so the rest of the Gospel of John, is nothing more than an expansion of this theme. So the big idea of John chapter 1 is how Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, has come to bring us to the Father's side and to reveal the Father's heart. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, the Son of God became a man in order to enable men to become sons of God. So this reality that God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, became a man is called the Incarnation. And we're going to explore the significance of the Incarnation under three headings this morning. So first, to discover the meaning of life, look at Jesus. Second, to experience the new birth, look at Jesus. And third, to know what God is like, look at Jesus. So first point, to, to discover the meaning of life, look at Jesus. So with this first point, we're going to hone in on a key word from verse 1, which is the word. In Greek, the word for the word is logos. Now, there are, there are two ways we can try to understand uh, what John intended to communicate by using the word logos. Like, books have been written on this, so we're just going to look at two <laughs> this morning. Uh, the first comes from looking at the Old Testament background of logos. So, if you have your Bible, look, take a look at verses 1 through 3 with me. I'm going to read them again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John chapter 1 is easily the most important text in the Bible for establishing the doctrine of the Trinity. And in these first few verses in particular, the Apostle John is hyperlinking us back to Genesis chapter 1. And this, this chapter, John chapter 1, is an obvious allusion to the creation account. So when he says, in the beginning... He uses the exact same choice of words that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses. So John's, in calling the story uh, from Genesis 1 to mind, John is showing us how to understand that text in a Trinitarian way. 
So in Genesis 1-1, God speaks creation into existence through his word. Genesis 1-2 says the spirit of God is present also, hovering over the waters. So in the same way, John says here in chapter 1 of his gospel that all things are made through the word. The word is distinct from God and also at the very same time is God. Later on in uh, John chapter 17, Jesus speaks of the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed and the love that the Father had for the Son before the foundation of the world. So there was never a time where the Son of God did not exist. And, and statements like these from Jesus as well as John and the other apostles were what led the early church to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity. So the Trinity, it means that there is one God who is eternally existed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And these three persons of the Trinity share the same divine essence. They're equal in power, eternity, divinity, and glory. And the Trinity can be hard to understand sometimes. And we definitely can't fully understand it. That's probably at least part of why, for pretty much throughout all of church history, the Trinity has undergone probably the most attack of any Christian belief. The Arians in the early church, they thought it was unbiblical. The Socinians, who came right after the Protestant Reformation, said the Trinity was illogical. Islam today says that believing the Trinity is blasphemy that will send you straight to hell. Uh, Je modern Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons say belief in the Trinity was just the result of the corruption of the church uh, and the Bible. And modern skeptics tend to see the Trinity as a later theological innovation that Jesus and the apostles would have never dreamed of. So there's a guy named Bart Ehrman. You may have heard of him. He's a skeptical New Testament scholar. And he said in an interview on NPR's show, Fresh Air, he said this a couple years ago, quote, he says, during his lifetime, Jesus didn't call himself God and didn't consider himself God. And none of his disciples had any inkling at all that he was God. And in that interview, Ehrman goes on to argue that kind of as time went on, religious piety outpaced historical memory. And slowly, over time, the church began to view Jesus as more and more divine. And this view is not just among a bunch of Bible nerds and scholars. This, this view has made its way into pop culture. Movies like The Da Vinci Code, uh, leave, they leave you with the impression that like nobody for the first 300 years of the church ever regarded Jesus as being divine until all of a sudden after Christianity became the established religion of the Roman Empire, Emperor Constantine holds a church council where he decides that Jesus is God because like somehow that helps him with political power or something. I don't know. And this story makes for a really great movie. Like who doesn't love a good conspiracy story? Who doesn't love a juicy cover-up that we found out? But it's bad history. And it's a lazy reading of the Bible. So for the question of history, let's take a look at the earliest non-Christian source about Jesus and the early church. It comes from Pliny the Younger, a regional governor serving under the Roman emperor Trajan. So in 96 AD, the first century, he writes this about the early Christians in a letter to the emperor Trajan. He says... The Christians uh, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light and of singing alternate verses, a hymn to Christ as a God. So the earliest non-Christian testimony about the church says the earliest Christians believed Jesus was God and sang worship songs to him every single week. Strike one. And to the charge of the Trinity being unbiblical, 
Check out this line for the Nicene Creed, which the early church wrote. It says, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things remain. Now, if we ran that through a plagiarism checker, it would not pass. It would be flagged as being totally ripped off from John chapter 1. Strike two. Now, as we defend the doctrine of the Trinity, let's not miss the point. Like, many Christians treat the Trinity kind of like we treat the apple terms and conditions. Like, yeah, 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 I believe that, sure, check, check, check. <laughs> the Trinity is the box we often, the, the box we tick so we're just not viewed as a heretic. Many of us are confessionally Trinitarian, like we say we believe in the Trinity, but functionally, we're Unitarian. We treat God as if he's a unipersonal God. But the Trinity is not an abstract philosophical principle. It's essential to who God is. Like, triunity is not just another one of God's attributes. God is the Trinity. And you, you can't even understand the person and work of Jesus Christ without some base level understanding of the Trinity. Like, if God were not triune, he would have never created the world. And he would have never sent Christ to redeem the world. Because God is a trinity, he, he didn't create the universe because he had some need or he was lonely. He wanted to get something from creatures, from his creatures. God already had all the love he needed. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were happy in themselves before the world even existed. So what that means is God didn't create the universe to get love but to, get, to give love. The meaning of existence, the reason for creation itself, was so that the love and goodness that already existed, in, already existed in the triune God could be shared with others. So we looked at the doctrine of the Trinity in a, just a, couple, just a few brief implications. And we also said there's an Old Testament background that helps us better understand John's use of the word logos. Now let's take a look at a different nuance of the word logos. This one is a little more philosophical. So it has to do with the Greek Hellenistic background of the world the Apostle John was living in. So if you look at verses 4 and 5, John writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John is saying that life is found in the word, the logos. And he says the life found in the word is the light of men. The Logos enlightens the darkness of fallen human existence. Okay, that's very ethereal. Like, how does that work? So, in John 17, Jesus explains this further by saying that he has the authority to grant eternal life, and that eternal life consists of knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So, eternal life is actually a broad term that just means life that belongs to the age to come. So, eternal life is not only about quantity of life, but also about quality of life. I mean, think about it. Everlasting life of poor quality, that's hell. And everlasting life of perfect quality involves increasingly knowing and loving the logos. And this is what John is getting at with his use of the word logos. You see, in John's day, logos was a, actually a technical philosophical term. For the, the Greek philosophical, philosophical schools, particularly the Stoics, the logos referred to the reason for life the reason for existence. They thought, they, they thought that if human beings, if we could find out the logos, the reason for life, and live in accordance with that purpose, humanity would reach its full potential. So for several centuries before the time of Christ, Greek philosophy was utterly consumed with finding the logos for existence. 
And pretty much by John's day, they had given up. Like, there's no, there's no reason for life. And with the first lines of his gospel, at least one of the things John's doing is kind of weighing in on the discussion. He says, here's the reason for life. And it's not an abstract philosophical principle. It's a person. Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. And when you meet Jesus, you discover the meaning of your life. You see that meaning is found in uh, Jesus Christ. It's found in knowing him, enjoying him, serving him, glorifying him, and becoming like him. But the key thing is you have to submit everything to Jesus Christ. Like lay everything at his feet and submit to his lordship. And submit to his definitions of what the good life is. So the modern view of freedom and authenticity says that you must look deep down inside of yourself. And whatever you find there should be uncritically affirmed by society and actively pursued by the individual. If we, de- if we deny our own authentic desires, it's repression. If we even question others' authentic desires, it's oppression. But the Christian claim is, is that unrestrained pursuit of our desires is not actually freedom. It's slavery. And just because a desire is authentic, it doesn't mean it's good. Like, actually, most of our authentic desires we can't trust. Now, Obviously, a lot of modern people don't like that. They want to be free. Sure, they want a purposeful life, but more than that, they want to be free to do as they please. And throughout the centuries, the more honest philosophers have said, okay, so you want to be free. You have to admit that life is totally meaningless. Like, there's no God, there's no transcendent right and wrong that's binding on everyone everywhere, and there's no afterlife where we're going to be held accountable for the way we lived. So live your truth. Pursue your authentic self. Now, a lot of people view that as a a liberating, freeing thing. But I think that's dishonest. I think it's intellectually, logically inconsistent. So there's a Frenchman uh, by the name of Albert Camus. uh, And he was an atheist. He's one of these philosophers who said that life has no inherent meaning. And so we must come up with our own meaning and and figure figure out what that is and pursue that. But he didn't view it as a positive thing at all. In fact, he said we are condemned to be free. He has a book called The Myth of Sisyphus. And in that book, he looks at an old Greek myth about a man who is condemned by the gods to a grim fate. So every day, for all of eternity, Sisyphus was to push a gigantic boulder all the way up a huge hill. And at the end of the day, every single day, the boulder would roll back down the hill right back to where he started. And Sisyphus would do the same thing every single day. And now Mary Camus said, sure, human beings are free, but we're all like Sisyphus. Like, don't you realize, like, if there's no God in a billion years, there isn't anything any of us are doing right now that will ever matter, that will have mattered you and I will most likely be forgotten about probably less than 50 years after we die. I mean, think about it. Do you know your great-great-grandparents' names or what they did for a living? And ultimately, all life on earth will die. The universe will slowly fade into non-existence, and no one's going to even be around to be upset about it. All of human existence will be just an accidental blip on the radar between the oceans of dead time that came before and the oceans of dead time that will come after Well, dang, David, I thought this was Christmas. (laughs) In all seriousness, the great thinkers have said over the years, you want to be free, admit life has no meaning. But I would say, and way more importantly, the Apostle John would say, true freedom is not found in self-determination. 
True freedom is found in submitting and serving Jesus Christ. Okay, so what if I said to you, today after the service, in the name of freedom, we're going to take my boat, I don't have a boat by the way, we're gonna, my proverbial boat, we're going to take my proverbial boat down Eastern Avenue. Who's going to join me? You would say, well, you know what? Believe it or not, I'm actually all booked up for the rest of the day. You won't want to come because that's not what the boat is made for. So it would not be a very pleasant experience either. But what if I said, let's take my boat down to the inner harbor. You would say, you know what? It's the craziest thing. Turns out I actually am free later today. The wind would hit our sails and we'd coast into the Patapsco River. And we'd have a blast. Because we're using it according to its creative purpose. And friends, don't you see? It's the exact same way with our lives. When we submit to God's purpose, intention and design for our lives will soar. We will flourish. We will thrive. And what is that purpose? Well, I don't think I can say it any better than the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it. It says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So if you want to discover the meaning of life, take a, a long, hard look at Jesus Christ. But what does it even look like to look at Jesus like, where do we even start with that? Let's think through that, let's think through that together uh, in point number two, which is to experience the new birth, look at Jesus. So picking back up in verse nine, John writes, the true light, which gives life to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was, was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John's saying, the word, the light of men, came down from heaven and came into the world. The light shines into the dark world, and there are basically two very different results of this. There are two different ways to respond to the light. There is a group who receives the light and a group who rejects the light. So the group who receives the light, they're described in verses 12 and 13. They are those who believe in Jesus' name, those who are children of God, and those who have received the new birth spiritually. So those who believe in Jesus' name, those who are children of God, and those who have received the new birth. So note that these aren't like three separate steps you go through. But these are all synonyms that refer to the same spiritual reality. Now, here's something very interesting. So in 2018, there was a survey, a social survey, and it found that 41% of Americans consider themselves to be born again. Unfortunately, I don't think it's anywhere near that high. Why? Well, in popular culture, being born again is often thought of as like when someone with a criminal record or a drug addiction, finally decides to pull it together to get their act together. Or, or it's when someone being born again is thought of as when like, a notorious troublemaker goes out and gets religious. Basically, for many, to be born again means I'm going to try harder than ever before to be a good person. Get my life together. A song, there's a song from the 90s grunge band, Alice in Chains. It's called Get Born Again. And I think it summarizes this understanding of the new birth. It says... I choose a day, one damp and gray. Clear all your sins, get born again, just repeat a couple lines. 
So chances are a lot of those 41% of people see being born again as this very mechanical thing that we decide and we achieve. We choose a day. We clear our sins. We get born again. All we do is repeat a couple lines. But what does it really mean for someone to be born again? Strictly speaking, there's nothing you can do. That's why John uses here in, in chapter 1 the metaphor of birth. Like, think about it. Did you choose to be born? Did you contribute anything whatsoever to the process of being born? If you don't know the answer to that, ask your mom later. <laughs> no, being born again is something that is not something you do. It's something that happens to you. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 3, he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So God is the one who grants new birth. And this new birth is what in turn produces faith in Christ. You can contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Now, I want to be clear. Putting faith in Christ is absolutely essential for salvation. But the point is, new birth or regeneration is what comes first. And this is what causes people to even have faith in the first place. So only those who are born again will believe. And that's because certain truths of Scripture only make sense to the spirit-illumined mind. Or as Jesus says also in John chapter 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Like, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Now, to understand what I'm talking about, let's look at the other group. Those, we looked at those who received the light. Now let's look at those who reject the light that's coming to the world. So verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So Jesus Christ, the Logos, the Word, the light, came into the world. And the fallen, rebellious world was so spiritually blind that it didn't recognize the one who created them was standing right in front of them. Verse 11, to to make it worse, says that the people of Israel, his own people, also didn't recognize Jesus for who he was either. Like, of all people, they should have known. They had the law, they had the prophets, which testified to the fact that God was someday going to send the Messiah to usher in the kingdom of God and bring salvation. And people do the exact same thing with Jesus today. So, last weekend, something kind of embarrassing happened. I was at a missions conference. I was representing the church plan network that Alyssa and I will be going to, Japan, going to Japan with in about a year from now. So, it was my turn to man the booth. And this random guy came up and started to ask about the church plan network. So, I go into my pitch. We're Mustard Seed, a global, or gospel-centered church planning movement that's making disciples among the unreached in Japan. And he listened patiently and was like, Oh, great. That's awesome. Thank you for your labor for the kingdom. Thanks for sharing. Have a good day. See you. Later on that day, he came back and told one of my teammates, Hey, so tell that new guy I said sorry for messing with him. It turns out that he was one of the two guys who founded the church planning network. So there I was, standing there, staring right at the creator of the whole thing. I was even regurgitating his own ideas back to him. But I had no clue who I was talking to. I saw him, but I didn't really see him. I heard him, but I didn't really hear him. And likewise, there are many people today 
who are looking right at Jesus and they're not seeing him. They're hearing Jesus' words, but they're not hearing him. They can repeat back historical facts about Jesus that they learned in Sunday school or in history class, but they don't truly know Jesus because they haven't seen him with the spiritual eyes and ears of true faith. In many cases, these are irreligious people that tried Christianity and it just wasn't for them. They're not the religious type. Or in some other cases, these are religious people who are sitting in the pews every Sunday. Like, do you ever wonder how you can just be like engaging in a conversation with a non-believer? You're laughing, swapping stories, having just a great time talking about life. And then all of a sudden, some facet of religion or the subject of Jesus comes up and poof, their eyes glaze over. They immediately lose interest. They change the subject as quickly as they can. And that isn't because you're boring or the subject is boring. No, there is a spiritual reality in the background of what is happening in that moment. That person is spiritually blind and spiritually dead. And the only way out of that is the new birth. Okay. Got it. But what does a new birth change? And what does it look like for a person to be born again? I'll give you an example uh, from my own life to flesh this out more. So if you've heard my story before, you know I was an atheist for a number of years. Before in college, some friends shared the gospel with me. I never heard this kind of message before. And I didn't like it. I didn't like the gospel at first. In fact, I absolutely hated it. But all that changed when these same friends insisted that I read the Gospel of Luke. And from reading the Gospel of Luke, that's when it really clicked for me. That's when I started following Jesus. And so a part of that story I often share is how I grew up Roman Catholic. So Catholic school, K through 12, mass twice a week, every week, religion class every school day. But I never clearly heard the Gospel. And I think a lot of that, most of that even, was the presentation The Roman Catholic Church has so corrupted the clarity and the purity of the gospel that the message they present is almost unrecognizable from what the Bible says the gospel is. But, this is important, what is also equally to blame for why I never heard the gospel was my own spiritual blindness. So, in Catholic school, every week we had a class called Choral Music, where we practiced hymns. And we all hated it, at least I hated it. It was always just before lunch, so you're starving. And the Catholic hymns I grew up with were not only cheesy, but absolutely soulless. So, and during my 18 years in the Catholic Church, I sang these songs so much that they're pretty much permanently melted into my brain. Like, I'll just be doing the dishes, and one of these songs would just pop into my head out of nowhere. And then suddenly, I'm teleported back to 2005, sitting and staring at a hymnal. I'm hungry, I'm bored to tears. I'm listening to Miss Lally play piano. And I'm singing with a bunch of shrill and unenthusiastic middle schoolers these words. Live in my love with all your heart as a father has loved me, so I have loved you. And that was the last time Villa David preached at RCC. (laughs) So in retrospect, it was deeply ironic to sing those words, not only badly, but with the lack of enthusiasm that I did. Because the last line of that song is probably one of the most stunning truths in the entire Bible, 
And I could barely stay awake while singing it. So these words are taken from John 15, 9, 15, 9, where Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Like, did you catch that? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus is saying that he loves believers as much as God loves him. And how much does God love Jesus? A lot. Here's what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, Jesus Christ is so lovely a person that, quote, that God the Father infinitely delights in him. He is his his beloved son, the brightness of his glory, whose beauty God continually sees with infinite delight without ever being weary of beholding him. And Jesus says the way in which he is loved by the Father is the way in which he loves believers. Jesus is never weary of beholding those he calls his own. He never gets bored or tired of loving us. His delight in us never fades. And that's not all. In John 17, 26, when Jesus speaks of the love that the Father has for his adopted children, he says that the Father has loved them even as you love me. Did you catch that? It's okay. We're also saying, too, that the, the way the Father loves Jesus is comparable to the way the Father loves believers. Like, what? And God's love goes for us further than feelings. Romans 8 says that God did not spare his only son, but willingly gave him up for us all. Like, is there anything more precious to God than his beloved son? And yet, amazingly, he still gave him up for us, letting him be brutally killed so that we could be saved. And why did he do that? Because we're so awesome? No. Because God is good, and God is glorious, and God is generous. You see, the Father is infinitely happy in the enjoyment of his Son. And because he is good, the Father wants to share the joy he has in the Son with all of us. Saving sinners and conforming them to the image of Christ further increases the Father's pleasure in the Son. And of course, it increases our delight in Jesus as well. So the whole purpose of the salvation of sinners is so that they can delight in the Son together with the Father. If you understand this, this is an absolutely precious truth. Like, this changes everything. And here is the distinction between someone who is born again and someone who does not yet know God's love. Before I met Jesus, here's how God's love sounded to my heart. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And now that I know Jesus, here's how God's love sounds in my heart. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Like, are you freaking kidding me? Jesus loves us as much as the Father loves him. Like, that's a verse in the Bible. Frankly, I I still can't believe this is actually in the Bible. Like, I read probably like 30 commentaries, and they were like, yep, it really is saying what you think it's saying. And I was like, whoa! And I think about this verse all the time. I meditate on it when I'm discouraged. I've been waiting for like months to find some way to share this verse with you guys in a sermon. Because God has graciously given me eyes to see Jesus and ears to hear of his love. And that's what it means to be born again. It's when the precious truths about God's love and grace in the Bible are not only understood intellectually, but it's when they're real to the heart and operative in your life. The medieval theologian Bernard of Clairvaux put it this way in a hymn called Jesus, the Very Thought of Thee. The love of Jesus, what it is, 
None but his loved ones know. So my question for all of you this morning is, how vivid, how clear is your assurance of God's fatherly love for you and affection? Have you ever experienced God's love in this way? If so, when was the most recent time? Or does hearing of God's love, is that like a boring hymn? Is that like a throwaway line to you? Like, when's lunch? It's an important question to ask. Um, So we looked at what it means to be born again. We said to experience a new birth, look at Jesus. And we said to discover the meaning of life, look at Jesus. And for our last point, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. So picking back up in verses 14 and 16 through 17, John writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So in verse 14, in just one sentence, John unfolds the greatest mystery in the whole universe. The story of how the eternal Son of God became a man, forever adding humanity to his divine nature. The incarnation is certainly a mind-bender, but why was it necessary? Another medieval theologian, Anselm, wrote, uh, or explored this in his book, uh, Curo Deus Homo, which just means, why the God-man? Very simple idea. So, in it he says, since no one, except for God, can make satisfaction for our sins, and no one, except for man, ought to make satisfaction, it is necessary for the God-man to make satisfaction. So, in modern language, our Redeemer must be truly man and fully God in order to save us. Only a human, only a human being can be a substitute for humans to pay the penalty for sin. And only God can fully exhaust his own wrath for sin. French Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal says this. He says, The incarnation shows man the greatness of his wretchedness through the greatness of the remedy required. Wow. This, so this passage is not only theologically rich, but it's packed with references from Israel's to events from Israel's past. So John places Jesus in the context of what God has been doing to save a people for himself throughout all of redemptive history. It says, The word made flesh, and this literally means in Greek that the word tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. Uh, and John's language reflects the language of the book of Exodus, where the personal presence of God came down in the same exact way in the tabernacle tent that had been set up in the Sinai wilderness. And when this happened, God also revealed his character more fully to his people. In Exodus 34, 6, God describes himself in this way. He says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And John's John's saying, this is the exact same thing that has happened to Jesus. It's a new exodus. Yahweh has come down from heaven. He's pitched his tent among us. And he's revealed himself to be full of grace and truth, which is a direct reference to God's self-description that we just read in Exodus 34. And this is really important for the way we understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Like, John shows us that we can't set up a false dichotomy between God's character in the Old Testament and God's character in the New Testament. Like, have you ever met anyone that does that? Like, he was like this in the Old Testament, now he's like this in the New Testament. What's up with that? 
John says you can't do that. Uh, it, it, uh, it wasn't like God was angry for 2,000 years, finally chilled out, and then sent in Jesus as like a PR cleanup job. That's not what happened. The Old Testament actually mentions God's grace, love, and mercy three times for every one mention of those things in the New Testament. So what this means is the same God who dwelt among his people in the tent at the wilderness of Sinai is the same God that became incarnate as a carpenter in Nazareth. So after the Exodus, Yahweh's personal presence came down from heaven in a tent and more fully revealed his character. And John is saying the same thing is happening again. God is more fully revealing who he is. So verse 18 is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. You'll see why in a second. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the claim of John is that in the Exodus, God was partially and indirectly revealed. Hence, no one has ever seen God. But now John is saying, God has fully been revealed in Jesus Christ. So, just as in verse 1 where it says the word was uh, God and the word was with God, um, there are two persons that are called God. There's the God that no one has seen, the Father, and there is the only God who is at the Father's side. There is God, uh, or Theos, and then there is the only begotten God, or monogenes Theos. And the text says that the only... but the eternally begotten God, Jesus Christ, has been at the God's side for all of eternity past. The word for side literally means like lap or arms. The old KJV said uh, bosom, so like kind of chest. And Jesus, so Jesus has been in the Father's embrace from all of eternity. God has reached into his very being and plucked out his own heart in sending Christ to us. And what's the reason? To save us, yes. But John is claiming even more than that here. He says that Jesus, the only begotten God, who has been in the Father's arms, has also come to make the Father known to us. The word used here is literally the word exegesis. In other words, Jesus is the exposition of God's hidden reality. He has come to reveal the Father. This is really important. The obvious but also stunning conclusion of reading John chapter 1 is that Jesus is God. Like, we've already said that. Verse 1 shows that, but don't miss the equally important truth that verse 18 says also. John chapter 1 says that not only is Jesus God, but God is Jesus. God is Jesus. Think about that for a second. A former coworker of mine, who's not a believer uh, in a past job, she once told me, I have trouble believing in God because of how angry he is in the Old Testament, but I love Jesus. He's awesome. If God were anything like Jesus, I'd be all in. And friends, the good news is that God is exactly like Jesus. God is perfectly Christ-like. There is no like hidden God lurking behind Jesus. Any conception of God that isn't consistent with the person of Jesus is an idol. It's not the true God. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 9, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, I want to be careful. This isn't like one of those red letters only thing where we ignore what Paul says or we ignore what the Old Testament says. We don't have two tiers of inspiration. Every single word of Scripture is equally inerrant. But that being said, Jesus does 
what we, what we are saying is that Jesus does give us the clearest picture of God's character. So if the idea, the application is, if the idea of learning about God sounds intimidating, if it sounds abstract, if it sounds too difficult to understand, we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus shows us who God is in a way that we can understand. It's easy to understand. And Jesus reveals God as a gracious and willing father who invites us into his very heart through sending his son. So before his conversion to the gospel, Martin Luther was a very religious man. He was a monk in, in Germany, and as a monk, his mind was filled with thoughts of God as only righteous and only angry at sin. But he failed to look any further into God. And as a result, though he was externally quite religious, he was externally quite pious, he admits, looking back, that he hated the righteous God that punishes sinners. He didn't love God. He didn't view God as a loving father, and so he could not love God back. So Luther and his fellow monks transferred their affections and their prayers to Mary and to other saints because God just so unapproachable. It was so they thought. And looking back, he realizes that he was not worshiping the right God. He said, it's not enough to know God as only creator and judge. He is those things. But God is, is, only when God is also known as a loving father is he fully known. So the question is, do you know God only as a creator and judge? Or do you know him as a father? As we close, think back with me to the beginning of the sermon. Remember, we noted that everyone, whether they're religious or not, is looking for three things in life. A meaning for life that suffering can't take away, an identity that is received and not achieved, and relationships where we are fully known and yet at the same time fully loved. John's claim in chapter 1 is that all of those things are found in Jesus. Like, if the meaning of life is simply to be happy and do whatever it takes to be happy, like, how can I prepare you to suffer or face death? Like, if the meaning of life is just to be happy, suffering obliterates life's meaning. But the Apostle John says that the meaning of our, of our whole existence is to know, love, enjoy, serve, and resemble the Logos, Jesus Christ. And the good news is that no amount of suffering can ever take that away from you. In fact, when followers of Jesus suffer, it usually just brings us closer to Jesus. And, if, and that's probably one of the main ways that God brings us closer to Jesus is through suffering. And of course, even death can't touch us either. Death does nothing to the believer except bring us into the arms of Christ. So are the things you're living for, are those things that can be taken away from you? Or are you looking to Christ as a secure source of meaning for your life? Well, the question of identity, if our, if our identity is found in anything that we achieve, it's inherently fra fragile, it's conditional. Like, don't you realize that you're never really more than a few bad decisions away from totally blowing it and totally ruining your life? Like, just a couple decisions away. And John shows us that our identity does not have to come, it doesn't have to be performative. Like, if we, if we brought the Apostle John up on the stage here and we asked him, like, John, what is your primary identity in life? He would not pull out his, long, his spiritual resume and list off all his accomplishments, all the stuff he did for God. His Instagram bio would not say, Apostle, Evangelist, Author of the Fourth Gospel. No. It would say, The Disciple That Jesus Loves. In fact, this is the only way that John refers to himself in his Gospel. Notice how it isn't the disciple that loves Jesus, 
It's the disciple that Jesus loves. Important distinction. What would it look like if the unconditional love of Christ was the primary place where you found your identity? And lastly, most importantly, John shows us that a relationship where you're fully known and at the very same time fully loved is possible. So in John chapter 13, during the Last Supper, there's a short little verse that you might miss if you just kind of run through it, but it says something very interesting. It says, One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Several commentators I read pointed out that this is the exact same language used in John 1.18, where it says that Jesus has been at the Father's side or in the Father's arms for all eternity. So having been in the Father's arms for all eternity, Jesus fully knows the Father, and the Father fully knows him. And this is the kind of relationship John has with Jesus, and he's inviting every single one of us to experience that too. Jesus Christ is the only person in the entire universe who can peer down into the darkest, deepest depths of your soul. He knows all the worst things you've ever done. He knows all the worst things you've ever said. He knows all the worst things you've ever thought about. At the same time, he's the only person in the entire universe who, having seen those things deep down inside of you, still says, come into my arms. He sees the ugliness of our sin and still says, here's my heart. Here's my life. All for you. You don't have to do anything for it. Nothing can take it away from you. All because I love you more than you can imagine. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And this, my friends, is what we celebrate at Christmas. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we thank you for, just again, for the mystery of the incarnation. Lord, thank you that we can look at Jesus and see just a beautiful, clear picture of your heart for us, Lord. That you're a Father that loves us, that pursues us, Lord, that calls us further in and further up into your love, Lord. So I pray that you would do that today, Lord, that you would uh, draw us further into your love, that we would see just the beauty of who you are, uh, and be drawn deeper into that, Lord. We thank you that, uh, Lord, that nothing we have done, nothing we can do uh, has given us this status as your children, Lord. But, Father, I thank you that it's all been given by sheer grace and by your will. So, Father, I pray that each and every one of us, Lord, I pray that we would experience your love in this heaven season, Lord. And I pray for the rest of the season, Lord, I pray that we would just be recaptured by the beauty of Jesus and his glory, Lord. And as we, st- as we look at you, Jesus, I pray that we would just be changed and be new people, Lord. Uh, even if we know you already, Lord, I pray that we would just keep looking back at you, Jesus, Lord. And that's what we need more than anything is to look at you, Jesus. That's what I need more than anything. And we pray all these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast. Thank you.